I have to admit, I used to be a little bit of a book snob. I wouldn't even consider a Kindle, let alone an audiobook. It just felt like cheating. But that is until I tried Audible and Open Audible. Ever wonder where I find the time to read all the books that my guests have written on this show? Well, this is the answer. When I'm behind in my reading, I just jump to audiobook. Open Audible is a cross-platform audiobook manager designed for Audible users that can allow you to download, view, manage, and connect your favorite audiobooks on MP3 so that you can enjoy them across all your devices. Best of all, you can control it all from a desktop application. I'm giving away a copy of Open Audible for the entire month of November. All you have to do is sign up to my mailing list. You'll find the link in the description below or go to openaudible.org for more information. If you write articles or copy or even work as an editor for a magazine, you're going to want to listen to this advert. Are you looking to save time writing online content? Well, Phosphor AI is an online service that will save you hours of work with your content creation. All you have to do is type in your title and their AI software will get to work writing a high quality original article just for you. You'll need to review the article and take 15 to 20 minutes to make necessary edits, but then the piece will be ready for publishing. Just for signing up, you'll get three free articles so you can try out Phosphor AI and see what it can do all for yourself. Why waste time writing online content yourself when you can get Phosphor AI to do it for you? Try out their service today and see just how much time you can save. That's Phosphor AI. Go to phosphorai.com. And you, they're very good at that. Um, anyway, so yeah, let's get going. Okay. Wonderful. So, uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today, I am here with Jeff Eder, the co-founder of Progressive Money Canada. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I came across your website after uh, watching a documentary, which uh, which name now escapes me, but it was the same one through which I found um, the guys from the Gold Antitrust Action Committee, who were uh, a lot of fun to have on the show. Um, but you have a slightly different take on the financial system than they do. So I'm really interested to get uh, get to grips with, yeah, sort of the sovereign money system and everything that comes along with it. So, yeah, why, why don't we actually just start there? Like, do you want to explain for people what um, what a sovereign money system would be or what it would look like? Yeah, um, basically, it's um, relatively straightforward. It's, it's when the government creates all the money in circulation and the money creation privileges of private banks is removed. So right away, as soon as I say that, a lot of people are going to be confused because they think, oh, doesn't the government create all the money anyway, uh, which is completely untrue. Um, the, the majority of uh, money in uh, circulation right now is, is digital, and it's created by privately owned commercial banks who have been given this extraordinary privilege uh, to create money through the loans process. So whenever you get a loan from a bank, new money is created. Uh, this is also called expanding the balance sheet because after the loans officer is, is satisfied, you're a good risk he or she will simply type into existence new money by simultaneously entering the principal amount on both the asset and liability side of the, the bank's balance sheet. And of course, that's the first problem in our, our, our current system is that um, new money is only created if a bank thinks it can make a profit, which is normally contrary to the public good. Hmm. Actually, can I just stop you there for a second? 
Is anyone keeping track? Like, like actually keeping track of of who is printing how much, or who uh, well, is creating how much out of out of thin air with some you know keystrokes. Yeah, it's usually yeah. It, you can do it through monetary aggregates, so you can do a simple calculation um, in your own country. Um, here are the most liquid form of mon- Are you familiar with monetary aggregates? Uh, yeah, with the, like the M1 and M2 money supply. Exactly. So basically, you know, the higher on the list, the more liquid that particular monetary aggregate is. So the most liquid is cash. Um, but it's become so insignificant that here in Canada, we don't even have a, a singular monetary aggregate for cash. We have uh, M1 plus and cash is in that monetary aggregate, but it doesn't sit there by itself. So if you compare that to, say, M3, which means all other monetary aggregates, which would be, say, you have like a term deposit, something like that, something that's slightly less liquid, but you can turn it into cash quite quickly. So I basically you can divide um, cash into um, the amount of new money that's created, the digital money. And in Canada, it's about, uh, you know, 2.4% cash compared with uh, and in the other percentage, which is like 97, 96.46 or something like that, um, is digital money. And that's all created through the loans process. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, and, and plus, even if you want to get cash, you, you still have to um, trade your digital money to get that cash. Mm. Yeah. I can't believe it's that low. It's only 2.4%. The rest is all just like digitally held. Yes. Okay. And again, it's easy to verify. Um, like you probably, I'm not familiar with uh, your central bank, but um, the Bank of Canada is very transparent w- with regard to things like that. Um, and you can check the monetary aggregates and you can simply divide uh, the amount of cash into uh, M3 which is uh, what um, most everybody uses as an indicator of how much cash is actually circulating in the economy. Mm. Okay, here we are. So it says the M1 money supply, M0. Do you guys have an M0? An M zero, yeah, okay, yeah. I'm the I'm the the Bank of England, so I'm gonna pull this up for people's sake. Oh, okay, you're looking at the Bank of England. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's my. Uh... Okay, so if you take M zero, and you just divide that into, and they'll show that probably they'll have a monetary aggregates up to about M three, and that's what they'll they'll say the the gross amount of money that's in circulation, and then you just simply divide the amount of cash into that, and then you'll get your percentage. Okay, that sounds like a lot of math to do right now, but <laughs> maybe I'll work this out later. Yeah, it's not. It, you'll you'll easily understand it once you start digging into the monetary aggregates. Yeah, I was starting. I was yeah, maybe an ambitious. I was yeah, hoping be, the site would tell me straight up just what what it was. No, <laughs> none of this stuff is that transparent. It's well, I was hoping someone might have uh, might have done the done the calculations for me. As the, the hope um, is always with Google. <laughs> well, I think they, 
did. I think uh, Positive Money UK. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Positive Money will have it. I had the guys from Positive Money on this show. Okay. Um, so, and their percentages will be very similar to the ones in Canada because I did a comparative analysis one time and uh, they're almost identical. And the, the actual percentage continues to drop uh, that percentage of cash to the amount of digital um, money in circulation. Yeah, of course it does. If, if you can just create new money by just like typing in some numbers. This seems like it's one of those things that, right, I hear people say this, okay, and I know it to be true, right? But it still feels insane to me that that's the way that like like how much how much of the money creation is that and how much of it is is being done at a central bank level? Uh, almost none of it's done at the central bank level. So okay, uh, all of the money in circulation is basically created through the loans process by privately owned commercial banks. Right. Okay. So these privately owned commercial banks, so it's not the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or or no. the Bank of Canada doing any no. of the money creation. Right. <laughs> okay. So so when 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 people talk about quantitative easing, right? Is that not them creating the money at central bank level? The way quantitative easing works is. Um, the, the central bank, or I'll use the Bank of Canada example because I'm somewhat more familiar with it. Yeah. Uh, so they'll purchase, and again, I'm going to use the correct terminology. This is what the Bank of Canada uses, which is a more exacting terminology. Okay. They acquire securities off the secondary market. Okay. Now, you have to understand the difference between the primary market and the secondary market. So the government, when it's you know short of funds, It'll issue securities, the bonds, just like a company would when it needs to raise extra money. So that's what the government does. So it raises, uh, yeah, so, so I kind of lost my train of thought here. What was your original question? Uh, the question is, like, what is quantitative easing doing? Is that not creating money at the top of uh, a central bank level? Well, what it does is the the central bank creates what they call settlement balances in exchange for securities off the secondary market. Okay. So these are securities where money was already created for the government previous. And these securities, which are treasury bills and bonds are floating around on the secondary market being traded between different financial institutions and uh, pension funds, trust funds, that sort of thing. Okay. So quantitative easing is designed to increase liquidity in the private commercial banking sector okay so by exchanging so by the central bank acquiring, and the bank of uh, central bank doesn't get this money from anywhere it creates new settlement balances in exchange for these securities okay. now the central bank here in canada is now paying uh four percent interest on those settlement balances because these are accounts that the banks hold at the central bank. So right, in, right around now, I, there's about $188 uh, billion in settlement balances that were created through QE. Um, but I'll just use 200 billion as an example. So 4% of that is like $8 billion that the Bank of Canada is paying to, to uh, 
commercial banks, which doesn't help government funding, doesn't help the public at all. What it does is it, it increases liquidity in the private banking sector. Okay. So, so, so I'm sorry. I just want to make sure I've got this right because I've had several people explain this to me and I want to really make sure I've absolutely nailed this. So, so what's happening is the, the at a central bank level, they are creating settlement balances, which yes. are being used to pay for assets on a secondary market. That's is that ex, like exclusively government bonds and securities, or is there other stuff in yes. there? Yeah, quantitative easing is that those are the securities that they're buying and creating these settlement balances for. Okay, so the and the who's creating these? Who's who creates the government bonds? Actually, is it the government? Yeah, okay. it's the government, right? And just like I said, it's that part's not that complicated. Um, it's just like a company when a company wants to increase its capital position because it wants to expand its factory, whatever. Regardless, they're short of funds, so they issue securities so that they can cover the shortfall. Uh, that they can't get through taxation and other revenue. Okay, right. So then this money is being yeah, pumped into the commercial banks who had owned those government bonds and and yeah, secure government securities. Right. So now so now the central bank holds both those securities mm -hmm. and of course the settlement balances are, you know, locked in and and the Bank of Canada pays this interest, this exorbitant interest on those settlement balance. Like I said, it's like eight billion if okay. you calculate it over the whole year. So do this are the set do the settlement balances ever leave the, the central bank or are they just sort of on a computer there and just get left there? Well, they're on there until um say the the banks uh because they're trying to return to normal, which is called quantitative tightening now. Mm -hmm. Um so if, a, say, a commercial bank um, wants to take the security back, then it takes a security back and it uses its settlement balances to take it back. And then you'll see a drop on the Bank of Canada balance sheet by whatever amount that is. Okay. Right. I think I've got it right. So then, but you're saying that that doesn't actually make up a massive amount of the actual money creation. No, it does. Sorry. Actually, so this, sorry, this is this is the thing that makes up the all of the money creation. Is this this transaction that you're describing here? Well, th this is um, what what because the Bank of Canada expand, expanded its balance sheet uh, by this amount. And again, this is not money for the government or any. This is money for the private banking sector. It's um, to me, it's it's absurd. So it's. But um, yeah. So what? Like why? Why are we? Why are we propping them up? Like <laughs> because that's the way um, it's designed. Um, our whole financial system, and that's the function of the Bank of Canada, is to help support the uh, banking and financial system. Um, but it's also a little bit more complicated than that. In that, the Bank of Canada also acts as the fiscal agent for the government. So it has this dual role, mm. um, and sometimes they conflict mm. uh, because basically say, yeah. the Bank of Canada is the banker's bank, and also um, the federal government's bank. So they're everyone's bank. Um, no, 
I wouldn't put it in those terms. There, the bank of you and I can't get an account at the Bank of Canada. No, so it's, no, yeah. I mean like indirectly because the you know we have to bank with all of the big banks. And well, then... the Bank of Canada is definitely it's part of the whole banking and financial system. Mm. So, okay, so how would this differ in a sovereign money system? Well, in a sovereign money system, you would take the money creation privilege away from uh, privately owned commercial banks. But you, there's no way that you could ever do that right away. That's why I suggest uh, the PMC has a transition plan. Um, so there's a, if you go to the homepage of PMC and the, the first video explains how the transition works. It's just short, maybe a four minute video. And uh, basically, it would uh, just have uh, absorb direct issues from the government and would create new money for the government that way. Um, they'd have to add another column onto the Bank of Canada balance sheet, um, you know, juxtaposed with currency. And they might call it central bank digital currency or just digital currency. But the beauty of this system would be that Money could be created for um, government spending, debt-free, because the Bank of Canada working as a fiscal, this blows people's mind, is that the Bank of Canada working as a fiscal agent for the government, any profits that the Bank of Canada has is remitted back to the federal government. Um, it's another important distinction to understand the difference between the central bank and commercial banks, and that is that the, the central banks generally do not hold retained earnings, and this is definitely true in Canada. So because it doesn't have any retained earnings, the Bank of Canada never has like a big pile of cash ready to buy things or to lend money. Anytime um, the Bank of Canada acquires a security, it creates either settlement balances or money for the government. Okay, so the Central Bank of Canada doesn't doesn't keep any profits, um, doesn't keep any money on available. So why should they? Like, what what is the case for for that being different? Like, isn't 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 that in some way better if they're not working for profit? It is. So if you look at the you know the mandate, it says it, it's supposed to be there for the public good. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, it's mainly there for the banking and financial system. And that's where we would like to tweak it. So it favors the public rather than the private banking uh, institutions. Okay. And so how would, how would the sovereign money system, um, how would that benefit the public more? Well, as I said, um, the Bank of Canada could absorb, like through the transition plan, um, any securities that are offered could be absorbed directly by the Bank of Canada. Uh, so essentially, that would be debt-free money that could be put into the government's account for government spending. So you wouldn't need a pass-through like a commercial bank uh, for that effort. And then eventually, you know, in, in the transition plan, I suggest that we start with our medical system because that we pay about 22% of our federal taxes uh, go into paying for our medical system. So if we just did that as a start point and, um, and then moved on from there, you run that program for a couple of years 
and keeping inflation in check and making sure that uh, any other complications, because of course it's humans are involved in all this. So obviously there's going to be problems. Um, and that's the first step. Um, so we could do that. And eventually you could almost, you could eliminate taxation. And that's one of the benefits too, of um, applying a, a sovereign money system is savings and tax. So in addition to this new debt-free money covering the 22% that you would normally pay in federal taxes, mm-hmm. a taxpayer would be saving 22%. So they'd have extra money in their pocket, which would also be a stimulus for the economy because more money in their pockets, more money to spend. So how, how, how do we get no tax from this? This sounds, this sounds wonderful. I'm sure the libertarians well, are all on board. Yeah, well, this is how these things are funded. So this is directly from um, uh, the Department of Finance. So you can check out all this stuff. But again, in the uh, transition video, it explains all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so you would save on tax taxation, like 20% of your federal taxes. If you just implemented the sovereign uh, money uh, transition plan by PMC. So you just let that program run for two years and uh, and then you keep expounding upon it and eventually rein in financial markets and and unnecessary um, um, money creating money part mm-hmm. of uh, the non-economy. Okay, so essentially you're saying that if we stopped money being created out of, out of nothing, all the time and we stuck to this like more centralized way of creating that money within that's held by only by the bank of canada but to be put to the use of the government for investment not to be utilized by the commercial banks that we would be able to reap financial rewards from the smart spending of government money and uh, maybe even handing out of loans from direct from the government to I don't know businesses that this would like generate enough money to hopefully eliminate the need for taxes. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. That's about right. <clears throat> okay, so essentially we'd be running the government almost like a bank or like some sort of business. We'd expect it to pay um, for itself. Well, kind of. People don't realize that um, you know the the money, or you have to talk about how inflation happens too. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about how inflation occurs. Okay. Well, do you want do you want do you want to clear up some of those misconceptions then? Because I'm sure I probably have some. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll use Canada as an, an example. Of course, the first thing um, the right wing generally or people who are against government spending or give government as a whole. The first talking point is government government spending leads to inflation and, and eventually hyperinflation, which is totally fallacious. And there's a, uh, I have a, a header uh, titled hyperinflation, which uh, negates those uh, assertions by people. So in Canada, <clears throat> Um, it was mostly driven by energy costs. So from 2020 to 21, over the year, 
gasoline prices rose about 33.3%. And actually, in November of that year, rose 43%. So gasoline prices, okay, um, have knock-on effects. So anytime energy prices rise, things like anything in transportation rises, refrigeration costs rise, anything involved in energy rises. So there's always that knock-on effect. Um, and then we also had uh, extreme weather events uh, during the growing season, which increased grocery prices. Uh, and those were the main driving factors in inflation on top of corporate greed. So there was, it had almost nothing to do with the serve benefits that the government provided for people, which means that they had, you know, they'd be compensated because they, they couldn't go to work. Uh, almost zero. It's almost immeasurable, but it's very easy to measure what actually caused the, um, uh, the inflation that we're currently experiencing. And the majority, majority of it is driven by energy costs. And all you have to do is look at the numbers. Now, if somebody was to come to you and argue and said, well, yeah, that's because of all the government spending. And it says, well, okay, let's, if you look at the other sectors, and the consumer price index, well, they're only rising by 4%, just a little more than the 2% average every year. So if this was purely a monetary phenomenon, meaning that it's because the government's spending money, then they would all go up by the same rate. So it's very easy to negate that argument with regards to that. Isn't that uh, because, sorry, can I just step in? Like, uh, you'll probably shoot me down here, but, you know, let me let me have my... My go at arguing with you. <laughs> so my understanding would would be that the increase in the money supply or the government spending itself isn't exactly the problem. It's the fact that we pumped a bunch of money into the economy without actually growing it or creating anything of of worth out of it. We just like pumped a bunch of money in for just because to increase liquidity or make it seem like there was more in the system or for whatever reason. And that in theory, when you add a bunch of yeah extra, extra money to the system, then it means that it's like, because there's too much of it, it becomes worth less. Right. And then though that different, that, that excess money flowing around, it sort of pumps the prices up, but in, in places like in my head, it didn't necessarily have to be across the board. Like the, the things could, people could take advantage of this or, you know, prices could pump up randomly across different parts of the, of the economy. Um, like it didn't have to be an absolutely universal rise for that to be a, a result of like adding a lot of money to the system. Have I completely got this wrong? Um, well, I'll just finish on inflation, which will answer your question. Okay. So, and again, the other factor in inflation was pumping all this money into the private banking sector. So creating all this extra liquidity is creating more money for banks. Now, what do banks do when they get more money? They speculate. And in Canada, um, 20% of the, new residential property sales were picked up by investment property dealers backed by banks, which artificially inflated the prices of uh, real estate. 
housing. And that was a secondary factor. So it was actually money created for the private banking sector that caused asset inflation. You'll also notice that over the same period from uh, when it first started in 2020, that the stock market was steadily going up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, during this time of crisis when yes. everybody is suffering, um, the banks and the stock market is is doing fine. Um, so, um, and to your point about, uh, uh, you know, too much money chasing too few goods and services, that is valid mm-hmm. over the longer period. But over the shorter period, when you want to determine what is the actual cause of the inflation, you just look at the numbers. And then you look at causation, which is slightly more difficult because, you know, you have to establish things like corporate greed, um, which takes time to investigate. And Mm -hmm. with the oil companies, it's pretty clear. I Mm -hmm. mean, they've been fixing prices for years. Um, But it's... um, yeah, so that's basically it w- with inflation. Almost none of it had to do with government spending. It had to do with the commercial banks um, through QE, mm-hmm. creating all this liquidity in the commercial banking sector, which again is based on this flawed theory that, okay, if the banks have more money, they're more likely to lend. Well, banks don't need more money to lend anyway. So <laughs> it, it, it's... That's such so, a good point, man. <laughs> oh, man. It's just bizarre how these concepts escape people. Um, and, and now that the banks are raising interest rates to try to collapse, and what will happen is the, the economy will fall into a bit of a recession because then people are more likely to pay off their loans and they're less likely to take out new loans. Um, but it's... Uh, there's so many things wrong with our system, but and th- this is, you know, this is not a panacea. This is just a start point. There are so many things that we have to do mm-hmm. to correct our system, to make it a more egalitarian and fair uh, monetary system. Yeah. I just want to read this line from, from your website. Actually, I found your hyperinflation header. Um, said the the case study of Weimar Republic shows that not even public money creation, but private bank money creation uh, triggered hyperinflation. Which is really interesting, exactly. Because it's it's because it's, it's probably an important distinction. Oh, for sure. Because and that's exactly what's happening with QE right now. So that actually causes asset inflation. Mm-hmm. Property values were inflated, and also the stock market was mm-hmm. also inflated. Because what do banks do? This is what they're designed to. Do. These are not evil people. This is just because this is the way the system is designed, and uh, profit is the most important thing. Yeah, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, except it's become. Well, it is. Un- a bad well, thing. but I mean, I mean, just the the like the pursuit of profit isn't necessary. Is is you know, it, in terms of like economic growth and just you know running the country is like not a bad thing. But what what is bad that it's become? The, it's the, bad it's- when it's when when it's money, which should be a public utility. It's when money makes money. That is a problem. Mm. So the more money you have, you just automatically make money. There's a problem with that in itself. Um, You know, money itself is being a store of value, unit of account and a medium of exchange. Yeah, that's great. Okay. But the important aspect of money is, is actually distribution. Who gets to create it and how it's distributed? Mm. Who gets the use of that first money? Yeah. So, 
the uh, the MMT people that I've had on this show before have made the case to me that the government should just use this quantitative easing power that they have, essentially, and use it to buy everything we want. <laughs> um, <laughs> which um, seems like a pipe dream to me. And I know you've got a couple of explainers out there about how about what MMT gets wrong, because like at, at, at first glance, it seems like you and the MMT people, you know, share a lot of the same beliefs in, in, in some aspects of, of how the, the financial system works. But what is it that you think they get get wrong and what, what have they not understood correctly? Well, MMT <clears throat> is a mishmash of ill-conceived concepts. And it depends on who you talk to and when. Mm. However, the cornerstone of the MMT descriptive analysis of how our current financial system works is their STAB hypothesis, which is they claim that the government must spend first before taxing and borrowing can occur, mm -hmm. which gets government financing completely backward. And it leads to other MMT fallacies like federal taxes don't pay for anything. So I've, this fraud has gone on for like 20 years plus. <laughs> and I break it down in this, in, a, in the debunking MMT page. Uh, the first video is uh, Modern Money Forget Theory, debunking the STAB hypothesis. And I explain how they do it. Um, and I'm directly quoting them. Uh, for, I don't know if you've read the deficit myth or anything by Randall Ray. I haven't but read it. No. Publications that I'm that I'm taking this this from. So this is not me in opinion based. This is what they're saying. Um, and anyways, I encourage you to to watch the the videos or go to the debunking MMT page because I make it pretty clear um, what their uh, the problems are with MMT. Um, like first right away you're going to be shaking your head when MNT claims that federal taxes don't pay for anything. But Stephanie Kelton says it right in her book. <laughs> and then I asked um, Warren Molser, who's one of the founders of uh, MNT, you know, I, I questioned directly. I says, okay, do you believe federal taxes don't pay for anything? And he, he pushed him on the point. And that's on record, by the way, on the debunking MNT page where I questioned Warren Mosler. And uh, he said, well, I wouldn't characterize it like that. Okay, you wouldn't characterize like that. Well, this is what Stephanie Kelton says in her book. So that's the most important. But MMT gets other things wrong, too. Uh, so basically, it's just as you imagine, Josh. Taxing and borrowing precede government spending. In other words, tabs. And there's documentation and data, and data to support this assertion whereas MMT lacks anything of substance. So in the second video that I produced, I show through um, cash flows. Can we just pause uh, here just to, sorry. Can we just pause yeah. here to just clarify for people who, who are listening and also to make sure I understand correctly. Um, that the, the MMT people believe that the government spends the money and then afterwards they tax it to take money out of the system, right? Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. 
Whereas taxation is just simply money that's being recirculated. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it's just the way you would imagine it, Josh. So there's, um, it's just another confusing thing that M- MMT does. So I explain how they, they do it um, in the videos. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, the, yeah, I was just pulling some of the videos up there for people to, to have a look at on screen. And then I'll, I'll put the links for all the stuff that we're, we're discussing um, in the description for people. Uh, so... And I also should say, and also one in the second video, we're explain how the financial system actually works. And I use real cash flows. I use real data from the government of Canada. And uh, and again, also um, affirmations from the Department of Finance. So it, it's a totally, it's the dumbest, it's the dumbest, most embarrassingly stupid thing that and it continue. It still it perpetuates to this day, but as soon as you look at it and uh, uh, start to uh, ask them questions, like straightforward questions that they can never answer, you realize it's just it's a fraud. Yeah, there's a lot of that going around. Yeah, <laughs> people people unable to answer straightforward questions, unfortunately, in far too many aspects of our lives. Yeah, I they think it's okay. That's the bit that irritates me. <laughs> Take it, it's like a becoming normalized, right? Mm. It's like a personal attack. If you ask a question, it's like, no, man, I want to know why you think you're right. <laughs> that actually is a good good point you just made about a personal attack. So, of course, because I'm explaining and asking these questions, I've been called every name in the book, and um, you know, like. I guess you have to have a thick skin, but I mean, the truth tells all. Mm-hmm. What and are they just, coming at you with? Like, what are they saying that, that like, that you've not got correct? Uh, well, there are certain MNT talking points. Um, you know, for example, they'll say um, that, you know, when I'm asking the question, okay, well, you say the government creates all the money, but then I'll ask Warren Mosler. I says, well, it's, Private and commercial banks that create all the money it says yes, yes, right. This, this is one of the founders, so that it's full of contradictions. And uh, but the, but he says, but they're agents of Congress. No, there's nothing in the you know in the Federal Reserve Act that says they're agents of Congress, and any even if they were, they don't work on behalf of the government or the public. They're a profit-making company. And that's the, their only interest is making a profit. So when they create a loan, um, their main their main motive is profit. Wouldn't you say that's right, Warren? Yes. So there's another video in the um, uh, as you scroll down the uh, debunking MMT page where I question him. I think uh, what's it titled? You, do you have it on your screen there? Yeah, the I do. So scroll down and you see, I think it's, it's got, um, um, the debunking end of Stephanie Kelton's working paper 244 or. Okay, go lower. And uh, it's a video called The End of Stab with Warren Mosler. Ah, yeah, here it is. <laughs> the End of Stab. So anyways. I don't I was... get what he, I don't get what he, like, did, did he actually try and tell you that, that the banks are working for, con- like the, the commercial banks are working for Congress? 
Yeah. Because like, has he, like, this right, is, does he know how puppet it. strings work? Right. They go, they go up. Like it's the people above with the money. They're the ones with the strings. Right. <laughs> well, this, this is how twisted the logic is. It's like, you know, if you tell Josh, you know yourself, if you tell one lie, you got to tell 10,000 other lies to support it. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing, uh, you know, falls under scrutiny like quite easily. But it, I was really surprised that they allowed me to ask Warren these questions uh, for as long as I was able to. With some Green Party event, um, because none of these people will debate me. Um, Stephanie Kelt, Warren Mosler, Steve Keen, none of these people will actually publicly debate me in like a form like this um, and have it recorded. Because I guess, you know, because I'm basically a nobody anyway. So they've got nothing to um, win and everything to lose. So that's another reason. But um, the tr- the truth will come out eventually, I hope. Um, but uh, what do you think they're afraid of? Just like looking stupid? Yeah, because like you could. <laughs> it's it's unfortunate, but the people, um, especially when it comes to monetary reform, um, a lot of it's ego driven. With a lot of people that I've seen in this field, because a lot of people get into this because they want to feel like they're the smartest person in the room. And they like that thing of being able to talk over people and, oh, you just don't understand. And this is what MNTers do too. When you ask them a direct question, like I have, like if you go through the debunking MMT page and they say, oh, you just don't understand. You have to read more MMT. That's another common MMT talking point. Instead of answering a question directly, yeah, you just, you have to read more MMT. So they have like talking points like that, that they fall to all the time that's just a couple of them but it's they just, have more so it's like oh you're you're too stupid to understand it's not it's if it, it's like if you if you can't explain your idea it can't be that good you know like albert einstein you, had a, a a beautiful quote um if you can't explain it to a six-year-old then you don't understand it yourself hmm and it's very true. Like, I'm sure that everything I've explained to you makes sense. And any questions that you've had, hopefully I've been able to answer them. And you can cut me off at any time if there's something you don't understand. But I have no agenda. And I have no ego about this this stuff. It's it's just something I realize is, um, needs to be changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty comfortable and, you know, I don't, I'm only willing to do so much myself um, and and I'm glad that I had this opportunity to, to talk with you to, you know, share this, this information, but I'm, I'm not going to be marching um, in front of the Bar- bank of Canada for two weeks on end with, with posters and things like that. Mm. Um, I, I'm hopefully this information can get other people energized so that, you know, if there is a movement, well, yeah, maybe it will, if we could get enough people, uh, to understand the basics of it and then make change. Mm. And we've actually had some sex success too, like actually through the, um, we have like a, a contact, um, Yvonne Baker, which is an MLA representative. He's on the finance committee, mm-hmm. uh, the federal finance committee. And so we've explained some of these things to him, how we could just, you know, 
empower the Bank of Canada to create money debt free. Um, that would solve a lot of our problems. There's, money should never be an issue. But unfortunately, again, as I say, one of the worst uh, major problems with allowing commercial banks this incredible privilege to create money is they only create money if they think they can make a profit. So that's contrary to the public good. Like mm -hmm. say we want parks, say we want to uh, address climate change. Mm -hmm. Education is something too that's gotten out of hand since the, the 60s. The fact that students have to go $400,000 in debt to, to get a degree, that's that's absurd. It should be paid by the government because in the end, uh, who benefits by it? The country benefits by it, mm. by educating the population. It empowers the population. But again, private interests, they don't care about that. They only care about profit. And again, it's not because they're evil. That is by design. So I, 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 every time I discuss the central banking system in any way, right, I just sit there and, and I'll start, and I, the, the longer the conversation goes on, the more the same thought rings in my head. It's like, who decided this was a good idea? Like, who passed this law that says that they that that's like that that what you're explaining, it which which honestly seems like the way it should be, and I reckon most people might even think that's the way it is, right? That if the government wants money, that they are in charge of spending, and it's them technically like running the country in which we have the central bank. Why can't they just have some of the money that they can just magic into existence without interest? Well, you nailed it. <laughs> it really is that simple. But you have to realize how our whole banking and financial system evolved. And of course, you've heard of the revolving door where CEOs from a particular company get into government. Mm -hmm. They pass a few laws that are favorable to the company. They get out and then they return to it with uh, <laughs> higher wages or and benefits. It's um, There's a huge influence that um, banks, bank lobbyists, and the financial elites have on government. So, I would also like to see, you know, government being more transparent, people being more empowered. Um, but right now, a lot of, um, you know, representatives, they they work for their donors, not their constituents. Mm. So depending on where the money's coming in from, that's who they'll work for. Uh, for example, oil companies um, in Canada, Alberta's like, that's where the the tar sands are and whatnot, and they're very right wingish. Um, so the government is heavily influenced by the oil industry. Mm. Um, well, they're and the that's ones, another. They're thing. the ones with the money, unfortunately. Yeah, and it's something that we have to. There's some again. I said this is just a starting point. There's is the transition plan is a starting point, but we have to open up this whole thing. There should also be a royal commission into the banking and financial system. And I want to be on that panel. I want you on so, that panel. How did we get you on that panel? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'm definitely, I'll be there. <laughs> you know, I have, even if I have to pay my own way. Mm. 
Um, but it has to be open and we have to change this system. And, but it's to me, it's a natural evolution because the people who have the money, just like you know any other human, you want to protect your own turf. And that's what they are. They just so they writ, write all these laws that are advantageous to their position mm-hmm. um, because they have the wherewithal to do it. So to me, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And that's why we continue to see the uh, gap between the very rich and the very poor increasing all the time. So like uh, in once we transitioned to this post um post uh, post fractional reserve world right post all the commercial banks having the ability to create all this money fractional reserve is, doesn't actually is that not exist. is that not the is that not a, an accurate term no okay but I can, we can talk about that in a second okay so once you make it. that would be really interesting actually um but yeah so uh, once we get to this sovereign money world actually it's a better way to put it then how big would the financial sector actually be like do we need a financial sector because it seems like they're they're not good for an economy i don't know if you're familiar with uh nicholas jackson's the finance curse i think i talk about it on every other podcast Um, i don't know if you're are you familiar with his work no okay well you would really enjoy that book because it's basically an analysis of how much of a drain on the economy the financial sector is and how much growth that we have lost over the past 40 years as a result of the of the size of the financial sector so he compares it to like a resource curse like uh, like uh, like like mm-hmm. angola uh, for example in in africa um but we are cursed with the outsized financial sector sector instead of abundant oil resources yes um so to expound on what you said um you know there are limits to how much uh, money a bank can create and it's assumed that they cannot cause an explosion in the money supply but that's only true in part since the 1990s this is probably corroborated in the book that you're you've read or th- this guy mm-hmm. Um, I've read tons of them, but, uh, you know, I can't read everything. Mm. So since the 1990s, uh, banks have created huge amounts of virtual money that ended up largely in financial markets. Um, These form a kind of virtual economy with few ties to the real economy, you know, of of the production of and consumption of goods and services. So, much of the money thus thus created ended up in complex financial products, famously called financial weapons of mass destruction by American billionaire and super investor Warren Buffett. Mm. These products were the basis for the 2008 financial crisis. Post-crisis, after a brief downturn, growth in this speculative financial system has resumed just as before. Yeah leading to an ever-growing risk of a new crisis. Um, One more thing that just popped into my head. Uh, This is monetary expert Bernard Lyotier estimated in 2010 that of the $4 trillion traded daily in currency transactions, only 2% was of significance for the real economy. Example for, you know, exporting uh, or or importing goods and services. 
The other 98% was used purely for speculation. So I totally agree with your position. 98% um, was for speculation. Yes. And it's consistent with QE. Yeah. Banks get money. What do they do? They speculate. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, look what happened to <laughs> look what happened to the crypto markets through 2020, 2021. All those big institutions claiming that they weren't spending their money on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't buy that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a page kind of dedicated to cryptocurrencies. Ooh, I'll have to check that problems, one problems with that too. Yeah. Yeah. There, there definitely is. Um, but um, what is it they always say? Bitcoin is not crypto. Mm. There's their Ponzi schemes. And then there's the one that might actually maybe, maybe work. Um, so the last thing, yeah. So for the last thing you were going to, you were going to explain to me why my, why fractional reserve banking is not actually what happens. Yeah. So this is still taught in macroeconomic textbooks to this day and is taught right to the highest levels of academia in universities. So in Canada, um, even when there were fractional reserves, it actually didn't work like that. Um, uh, there was research instituted by Basil Moore in the 70s and later corroborated by Kidlin and Prescott were, uh, that the causation was actually the reverse. So banks would create the loans first, then they would go looking for reserves later. And they had like a two-week period uh, to adjust their books. So even when there were reserve requirements, but in Canada, um, we went off reserve requirements and july of 1994 uh it would they were weaned out over a period of two years and so now there is no a reserve requirement whatsoever so what restricts um the amount of money that banks can create well they have capital adequacy capital adequacy requirement ratios which is incredibly complex and i have like a short video that it did i don't even look into it anymore um and it's so complex. It's basically a veil so that the people that are actually manipulating the numbers, um, it, they they can get away with more things. Uh, to me, that's the only reason why it's as complex as it, as it is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that would not that would not surprise me. Not, not yeah. at all. Um, I should say one more thing about uh, fractional reserve bank. You can pick up any macroeconomic textbook and it'll show you, explain you how... Um, fractional reserve banking theoretically works. So theoretically, a bank is supposed to have, uh, say, a certain percentage of reserves, which is cash, um, always in their coffers. And the only money that they can lend out is excess reserves. But it doesn't work like that at all. <laughs> okay. Because it's just like the only thing that's it's based on is these... Um... I can't remember what you said. These ratio requirement, this yeah. the, the magic algorithm that tells them how much they exactly. can. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, and some of the things like in the capital adequacy requirement ratio is they have like um, again, it's very complex, and I have a video. It's worth listening to, but it, I have it in a PDF form too, so you don't have to listen to me babble away because it's about fourteen minutes long or something like that. 
But I mean, I'm laughing while I'm doing this, like how ridiculously complex this whole thing is. And they also have uh, um, one way to calculate risk for a bank is it called their internal ratings-based approach, which means they determine the amount of risk <laughs> rather, than, rather than an independent body. Oh, it, that's amazing. It, it's, worth, it's worth listening to um, <laughs> at least once, but... But again, there is the PDF supplement too that, that goes along with it. Okay. I'll see if I can find that for people as well. The last thing actually I want to ask you about, I found the, your crypto um, page, I think, but you talk about central bank digital currency, which is something that I discuss endlessly on this show at the moment, but mainly because I'm terrified of the government having the ability to program your money. Um, yeah. So what? That's definitely, that's definitely an issue. Mm. And in fact, like if we were going to create like debt-free money, we'd have to create like an extra column on the Bank of Canada balance sheet. Now, what are you going to label that? Uh, because one column would be for currency, okay? And the other one would be for digital currency. So um, privacy is a concern for a lot of people. And the fact that they can map out, and this is definitely an issue. And I don't have any real answers for that yet. Um, I mean, to me, it's almost like personal preference. Mm. Like uh, to me, I'm not concerned about <sighs> having my money um, recorded on every transaction. Oh, so that's not I, what that's not what concerns me at all. It's okay. the it's the ability for the government to to like it's because it's the 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 feature of the central bank digital currencies that have been rolled out in 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 China, for example, the one that's been trialed for the past two years um delineates what you can spend your money on and mm. then can just be like your your account can just be like just frozen immediately and your money is no longer your money those are the two bits of it that terrify me especially in the uk when we've like a passed the pro or a law that says protest loud protest is illegal now and there's there's a law going through our our parliament that says that the police will have the um, ability to preemptively go and like put injunctions in place and arrest people who have done nothing wrong. Okay, that's super scary. And of course, um, PMC is all about empowering people. Mm. So all these things have to be completely transparent. And if there was another column that you put down on the Bank of Canada balance sheet for digital currency, then of course, all those uh, issues that you just brought up would have to be addressed. And of course, I'm against everything that you said. I'm in total agreement with you. So that would be, again, part of the um, the process. Hmm. So I you mean, think there would be a way to like do it without having these horrible features? <laughs> exactly. Well, you could. like By simply saying that, okay, yeah, there's a digital currency. Now we're spending it directly. And what's the beautiful thing about it is you wouldn't have to, all you have to have is a number, like a serial number uh, attached to the dollar value, just like you have on real currency. Mm. And then it, it floats through the economy. And I don't have any problem with that at all, okay. but they have no ability to freeze your accounts. Now, what you were talking about a central bank digital currencies, having a, a direct account with the central bank. Mm. And to me, I don't even advocate that. I think the money should be created debt-free and then floats around and banks would still have a purpose. They just wouldn't have that extraordinary privilege of creating money out of nothing. Mm. So they would 
move money for you the same way they do now. And it would work more like it actually, how they say it works uh, in uh, macroeconomic textbooks, the, the circular income model, mm. uh, yeah. where they're just, they all they do is they move money from one place to another. And then sure, they, you can charge a fee for that. Mm. Um, and then they could compete with each other about, you know, who charges the least amount of fees, mm-hmm. you know, gets the most customers. Um, and if they had to say, um, you know, if you wanted to say have a loan from your local bank, well, they would have to borrow the money from the Bank of Canada. And if if, if it was something like, a, you know, like a boat or something, luxury item or whatever, um, the Bank of Canada could lend that to the commercial bank for like 0%. But all those kinds of things are, you know, uh, logistics exercises that would follow. Like once you got it, it's a step-by-step process that could, this could never happen all at once. Mm. So you have to take that first step. And what you said about, you know, I mean, to me, that's terrifying. Um, this, you know, that, that idea of a central bank digital currency. So again, it's totally how it's implemented. It's about who get, who creates that money and how it's distributed. Mm. So with a progressive money Canada plan, it would just be simply digital money that, excuse me, that first starts um, through government spending, through, you know, programs that are productive, like through our medical plan or whatever. And then that money goes into a doctor's account, a nurse's account. And that nurse goes out and spends something at the grocery store. The grocery store guy goes and spends it on something else. And it just floats, just like actual currency does. Hmm. It's just, hmm. if it was digital, then it would have a, a mark so you'd be able to know like and i have no problem with that whatsoever but to actually attach it to an account um yeah i totally disagree you should have an account at your local bank just like any other account so i'm kind of against having a a direct account i've just i've just had the most hilarious idea that um are you know what an nft is right sorry do you know what an nft is uh, that's some kind of a crypto thing. Yeah, so it's it's not really like kind of is. So it's a non fungible token. So it's like a digital stamp that something is. That's it. That's the only one that those of those that exists, and it, get, it can be traded on the blockchain. So people use it mainly for like stupid digital art pictures at the minute, right? And there was people speculating and making obscene amounts of money off of them um over the last couple of years but the the that doesn't interest me at all what interests me is this like this non-replicability thing it's like you have a stamp that says this is it this is the only one of that will that will exist and what what you can do is you can you can fractionalize that so you can take like tiny fractions of that and i was just like what if there was only one canadian dollar like digital as a digital nft and all of the things we traded were fractionalized versions of that because that would that would work the same way. It would just be a oh. token that represents something that like floats around the internet that's like non-replicable that can be identified like a serial number, and that just floats around the system. See, I don't get how that would be any improvement to what we have right now. Uh, because it's 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 doing exactly what you what you're saying. You um that the it would just be like a digital piece of money. That would float around the system but it would there would be a finite number of them that would be controlled by a central source 
and issued by one source. So that's how they could issue the money. Obviously, this is just like really stupid, like blue sky is blue sky thinking about how it might work in the future. But um, anyway, uh, before we get yeah, before I say anything else stupid, uh, let's uh, let's wrap this up. So, um, Jeff, I really, really want to thank you for joining me. Um, it's been very, very educational. You've done the best job possible um, of explaining how quantitative easing works and where modern monetary theory gets it wrong. So you've actually cleared up quite a lot for me. So thank you very much for that. It was been it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you, Josh. Um, so I will put the links for Progressive Money Canada um, and all the different pages that we we went through um, in the description below for people. Um, is there anything else you want to point people towards aside from your your site? Um, no, nothing uh, with regards to that. I was just curious about uh, how, um, when you post it and if you could forward the link to me. Oh, of course. Definitely. Definitely. Don't don't worry. I'll not, I'll not forget to do that. Okay. Um, so yeah, man. <laughs> thanks very much. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it right the way to the end of the podcast. I love that you tuned in this long. Do me a favor, hit subscribe, because 80% of you bastards are not subscribing, but you're watching my videos. See you next time.